Well, I'm sure that you've heard uh, the phrase, they're just trying to butter you up. And as I prepared for this sermon, um, I got curious about the etymology of that phrase. I wanted to know where it came from, and so I tried to, to figure that out on the internet, but the sources there are a little bit sketchy. So it, it probably either comes from the idea of just the obvious imagery of laying on compliments thick like butter, but the other option that popped up a lot was uh, a tradition they had in ancient India of, of the people would take these balls of clarified butter and lob them at statues of the gods in hopes to curry favor. I don't know if that's true, but it's a lot more fun to talk about in a sermon, so I'm gonna go with it. Um, my, uh, my daughter, Ember, will be three this month, and she is just incredibly ver verbal, super verbal. Uh, most of what she says is either hilarious or wildly defiant, some, sometimes some combination of both, but, but she, is, she is clearly becoming a strong, independent young woman. I am no longer afraid that anyone will push her around when she's an adult. But there are times, and it's usually uh, right around bedtime, shockingly, that she becomes the most sweet, compliant, just affectionate little girl in the whole world. So, so we, we finish up dinner, we watch TV for a little while because my parenting is inferior to yours. And uh, then we go upstairs, we, we brush our teeth and get a bath and, and get ready for bed. So it's right bet between the time when we finish uh, TV time and before we go upstairs, suddenly my toddler just worships me. Mommy, you're so pretty. Mommy, you're just the best mommy in the whole wide world. Mommy, will you snuggle with me? And I know what's happening. She's working me. She's working me. She's working me like the Summit staff works a box of leftover donuts. I know what's happening. She, she, she knows that she doesn't want to go to bed, and she knows that I'm the one person who can grant her a stay of execution, and so she's, she's trying to butter me up. And, and what kills me is that she really believes that I can be conned that easily, that, that, her, that her toddler charm will somehow blind me to the thinly veiled manipulations that she's trying to accomplish here. And you know what? She's right. She's absolutely right. <laughs> Will you snuggle with me? Come on. What do you have, a heart of stone? Don't judge me, Christians. I will willingly subject myself to at least another 20 minutes of Dora the Explorer going across the bridge, over the gate, and up the big red hill just to get a little bit more snuggle time with her. Because you know what? The day's coming when she will no longer want to snuggle with me, and so... I let her butter me up all she wants. This week we're picking up in James chapter two, and at the beginning of this chapter, James is addressing a behavior in the early church by the leaders of the early church where, where they're essentially trying to butter up the rich people who are coming into their worship gatherings, and, and James has quite a bit to say about this. So if you have your scriptures with you, you can open up to James chapter two, starting in verse one, or you just listen as I read. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, but if you show partiality... 
you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. So we're going to take this passage piece by piece, but first let's review where we've come from so far. So this is James... The, the brother of Jesus, and he's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered throughout the nations. These are Jewish Christians who have been displaced from their homeland in the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, most likely living outside of Palestine and Syria in these little house churches that are springing up here. And a major theme of the book of James is, is this idea of, of wholeness, of being complete and undivided. He talks about the necessity of the Christian to have an undivided faith. He gives examples. The man with a divided mind is unstable in all he does. He speaks blessings and curses from a divided mouth. He sees uh, and immediately forgets because of his divided attention. He, he knows what good he should do, but doesn't do it out of his divided heart. And by contrast, he talks about the, the perfect wholeness of God. His undivided purpose for man, there is no change or variation within the character of God. I have a, I have a friend who gets really excited when the, when the, uh, at Easter when the Reese's eggs come out because he says, and I quote, it is the perfect proportion of chocolate to peanut butter in every bite. I, yes. Um, and I think God's characteristics are kind of proportioned in that same way. You get all of the goodness in every bite. There's never a bite that's all wrath and no mercy. There's never a bite that's, that's so sweet with grace that it has no truth. God is always all of his characteristics, all of the time. So in the previous chapter, James has admonished his readers to not be simply hearers of the word, but doers also, that true religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think it's important to note the, the situation here of James's audience. Jewish Christians in the first century AD, AD were poor. Um, they, they, they had been displaced twice from their homelands. They had to rebuild their businesses and, and their farming operations from scratch with, with no support, no resources. There were documented droughts during this time, so they would have been facing just even more additional food scarcities there. They're being oppressed by, by Jews who have not converted to Christianity and actually who see Jesus as Messiah as a perversion of their faith. So they're being pressed on all sides, economically and socially. And James writes to them to encourage them to remain undivided in their faith like the undivided God they serve, even in the midst of the testing of these trials. So verse 1, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So here are these poor people. And, and, and they're kind of in this desperate situation, and a few well-dressed, well-off individuals come into their house churches. And, and these could be new converts, but it's more likely that they're visitors because they're being told where to sit, and the, the rich are being given the best seats. So I think, I think the irony here is, is, is fairly heavy. 
Remember, James has, has just told them to not simply be hearers of the word, but doers also. So this behavior is, is literally, and, and I'm using that term in the literal sense, it is literally hearing only and not doing. You are literally sitting in a worship service, hearing the word of God, and you are actively doing the opposite of what it says by, by showing favoritism to these rich people. It's, it's nonsensical. It would be like bringing your, your mistress to a, to a sermon on adultery. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So this is, this is one of my favorite parts of, of, of this passage because the verb that James uses here, diacrino, has two renderings. And, and most of the, the translations will render it, as the ESV does here, as um, have, you not, uh, have you not discriminated among yourselves? But, but the alternate um, rendering of this is one that James has already used in chapter 1 when he's talking to them about not having a divided heart. And so a, a fair and I think perhaps even more meaningful rendering of this would be something like, have you not discriminated within yourselves? Not among yourselves, but within yourselves. In other words, has your heart not become divided? Have you not become the, stable, the unstable man whose tongue both blesses and curses, who forgets what he looks like, who knows good but doesn't choose it. And, and, and this is brilliant because, because is it not the, the, the dividing of our hearts, our choice to be loyal to, to the world and not to God, is it not the division within us that leads to the division among us? From a divided heart, our tongue both blesses and curses. And I think kind of the modern equivalent of this would be like, with the same mouth, we both praise people and then gossip about them. If you're in high school or middle school, you, you know how quickly gossip can divide a group of friends. We become divided in ourselves and therefore among ourselves. One leads to the other. James is connecting the conflict within the individual to the conflict within the community. So he's saying don't show partiality because it has internal consequences that cannot help but bring about an external repercussion. Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So I think we can observe here, and, and I actually think probably the, the, the leaders of the early church knew they had enough awareness to understand that they were in fact showing favoritism to the rich at the expense of the poor, but it, it's really hard to get someone to stop doing something that they, they think might actually work for them because they're desperate for some help. And so, so, the, so James takes a really pragmatic approach here by saying, listen, it, is this working for you? Are, are, are you getting anything out of showing favoritism to these, to these rich people? Is this working for you? Because best I can see they are the ones who are keeping you in poverty. And what James is talking about is the fact that, that at this time, the, the wealthy landowners in, in Palestine and Syria were, were buying up all of the land, and then they were forcing these, these poor people to work as their tenant farmers with, with uh, no say in, in how or what was done in their farms anymore. So, so the farmers no longer could accumulate any wealth from the sale of their crops, and, and, and even the portion that they were allowed to take for themselves may or may not be sufficient to feed all the members of their family. It's just a bad situation. Is this working for you? 
James asks, are they not the ones dragging you into court? So, so this question is related to the first and that it's a civil matter. This is civil court where the rich are using their influence and power to gain favorable judgments against the poor. So they can force them to, to forfeit their land as a result of one late mortgage payment. Or they can offer them money in, in the form of what looks like help but at such untenable interest rates that they're essentially making these people into indentured servants. Is this working for you? He asks, are they not the ones blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So this is probably some combination of the pagans who were mocking the Christian religion, but also the Jews who did not convert to Christianity. They are, they're furious. They think that this is, they're, they're immensely insulted by the idea of Jesus as the Messiah. So in light of these circumstances, it's, it's a fair question that James is asking. Is this working for you? Is it worth it to show favoritism to the rich when they're the ones abusing you? Is this working for you? When I was growing up in Pennsylvania, uh, we did a stint in a little town called Darlington. It's uh, just east of Ohio. And when we moved into the house that we were renting, uh, we, we saw our neighbors for the first time who, who weren't there when we had viewed the property. There's a, a group of guys and one lady, and they were uh, burning a tire in the front yard, um, <laughs> drinking Jack Daniels. It was like 11 a.m and just generally looking sinister. Uh, and and the, the biggest of the guys, whose name we later uh, came to know was Haas, um, was, you know, he's like wearing a shirt that's ripped and sooty and just barely concealing his massiveness. And, um, and, and he's just staring at us, <laughs> just watching us move out of our U-Haul. And then finally he yells over, much to our surprise, in a very friendly voice, hey, hey you guys need any help? And, and my mom, I could see, was like, torn between a desire to like not be any nearer to the neighbors, but also to not insult them. Um, so she kind of just goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so then the Incredible Hulk turns and nods his head at the only woman in the group who was turned out to be his wife and says, Lila, go help them unload. <laughs> These were our neighbors. And they were absolutely terrifying. Um, the, and the, the more that I got to know, I hung out with their daughter a little bit, and the, and the more that I got to know them, the, the more scary we found them. The, the stories, um, I mean, they did some really scary things that they told stories about, stuff that would keep you up at night. Haas had three brothers, Ponch, uh, Hippie, and Stinky. Um, little Ronnie was also his nephew who was around a lot. I'm not, I'm not making this up, this is my life. <laughs> Uh, and it was, and it was really, it was an uncomfortable situation for my mom, who was a single mom, uh, raising two kids on her own beside a group of people who, who she was a little afraid of. And so, uh, after a month of careful observation, she devises a plan. And I come home from school one day, and she's cooking like, t like twenty or thirty chicken patties in our oven. And and I love chicken patties just as much as the next middle schooler, but this seemed, in a word, superfluous. Um, so she's cooking all these chicken patties. I'm like, Mom, what, what are we doing with all these chicken patties? And she like, takes a deep breath, <sighs> squares her shoulders toward the door, puts them on a platter, and says, we're feeding the neighbors. It was genius. It was brilliant. That things were much less tense after that. Nothing gains relational capital like delicious but really terrible for you food. And so this was, this was her plan. And, and for sure, my mom was not trying to become lasting, deeply entwined friends with this, this group of people who kind of frightened her, but she, she wanted security. She wanted peace of mind, you know, that our neighbors wouldn't kill us with sticks in the night. And, and, and this is how she, she did it. She, she showed them favor in order to gain that, that security, to get that need met. We all want to get our needs met. 
Every single one of us has needs we want to get met. And there's nothing wrong with helping yourself. There's nothing wrong with, with being responsible with what you have. There's nothing wrong with getting creative. I actually thought her solution was clever. But it's, it's when we begin to imagine inwardly that God is no longer the author of our provision. That's when we begin to behave outwardly in such ways as, as to gain that provision through other avenues, by other means. That's why they're showing favoritism. They don't actually think that the rich are, are more deserving than they are. They, don't, they may not actually want to be friends. They, they see the rich as people who might help them out, people who can do them a favor. And so they are rolling out the red carpet at the expense of the poor. And I think it can be pretty easy to check out here at this point because you and I are not living in the same socioeconomic moment in history that the first century Christians were. You're probably not buttering up old people. Uh, old people? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, you're probably not buttering up rich people at the church or old people. <laughs> oh, it's on video forever. Uh, <laughs> you, you, may, you may not know any rich people. Um, you, may, you may be a rich person, um, who knows, but, but chances are this is not a behavior that you're engaging in. Uh, this behavior with rich and poor was manifesting itself because of a very specific socioeconomic circumstance, but it would be a gross oversight for us to imagine that, that, that this circumstance was what was causing the defect of character here. It isn't. It's actually just revealing a character defect that already existed. Trials don't cause character defects, but they often reveal them. Because the, the root of the behavior is the same. It's, 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 it reveals the divided heart that doesn't trust God and that tries to find other avenues of getting our needs met that are outside of his boundary to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It could be that you are materially poor and, and, and you are engaging in favoritism toward the rich. I know that still happens. But it, it could be that you are feeling emotionally poor. And that relationship that, that you know is outside the boundaries of healthy intimacy is, is your pathway to acceptance. It could be that you feel relational poverty. And the fastest way to fit in is by heaping some more shaming comments onto the social media pages of that girl who everyone else is picking on. It could be that you feel a, a poverty of relevance. You just want to feel like you matter, that you're important. And so you are sacrificing your health and your Sabbath and your family just for the attaboy that you'll get at work at a job that you're not even sure you want to keep. We've all been in pain. We've all been in pain, and, and, and sometimes when we're in pain, we attempt to get relief not through the best avenue, but through the best bet, the fastest way to feel better. But guys, it, it doesn't work. On a long enough timeline, it doesn't work. What James is saying here is, is you're showing favoritism to the ones abusing you. How is that working out for you? And I would submit to you that this is true of every avenue through which we pursue relief that is outside the saving boundaries of God's design. Listen, God, God's boundaries are not for him. They're not for his good. They're for our good. He didn't need us to behave. He doesn't need anything from us. He's God. But we are made in the image of God. We are designed to be like him. So when we live like him, we find our lives most satisfied, most free. 
Think about it. God's, God's law is his character in the form of commandments. It's like an instruction manual on how to imitate him. It's not meant to restrict us, but to help us understand how to become what we were created to be. If you think of your soul as kind of like a piece of Ikea furniture, right? No one is going to get the hems dresser to be what it's supposed to be without the instruction manual, right? That's just not going to happen. And, and, and you, don't, you don't have to follow the instructions. You don't have to put it together according to the instructions. You can freehand that, but if you do, you are going to end up with a drawer that opens from the rear, I promise you. Without the instructions, without living according to its design, it's never going to become what it could have been. And under the, the smallest amount of pressure, it will fall to pieces. And so will we. Getting our needs met through avenues that are outside the loving, protective boundaries of God's command to love him and love our neighbors as ourselves just doesn't work on a long enough timeline. Yes, we are free to live however we want. We can live outside those boundaries, but I meet people every single week at Regroup who have chosen that type of freedom and it's only enslaved them. And the liberty that they've elected to take to just follow their hearts has created a new kind of bondage. I've been there too. It just doesn't work. So James is saying, listen, don't, don't exalt the rich because one, it, it's, not, it's not working for you. They're not doing you any favors. And two, because God has chosen the poor to inherit his kingdom. So why are you disrespecting them? And parenthetically, I just want to be clear that we're not reading more into the text than is actually there. James isn't saying that God only chooses the poor to inherit his, his kingdom, only doesn't appear there, but, but it's just a fact that a lot of the Christians at this time were poor. So the point here isn't, isn't that rich people are bad and, and, and poor people are good. There, there are some wonderful, wealthy people in the world, and I'm sure there's some awful Poor people, I'm, I'm certain of that, but God, he's not trying to trade favoritism to the rich in exchange for favoritism to the poor, as though being poor is somehow in and of itself redeeming. It's not. Poverty, and, and by poverty I'm specifically talking about a lack of, of the basic necessities for living, whether that's material or emotional or spiritual or, or mental. Poverty is not what God intends for any of us, and it should be remedied as far as is possible for us to do for others as well as ourselves. There's nothing sacred about pain by itself. In fact, trials, trials that are not met with the obedience that we have through faith, I think trials don't make us better when we, when we don't respond in obedience. They actually make us bitter. It's only when, when our pain is met by a response of obedience through faith that we have the opportunity to begin to find joy in our circumstances, the joy of knowing that in our pain, we are probably closer to Jesus than we may have ever been. And the joy of knowing that through this refining trial, we will be able to stand a little firmer and a little more courageously before any circumstances that will come in the future. God's intention is not to replace discrimination against the poor with discrimination against the rich. God's intention is to bring both rich and poor into a, into a better, more realistic picture of their common condition. So for the poor who have nothing, that means bringing them up to the status of nothing less than the beloved of God. But for the rich who the world has already exalted, that means bringing them low to the status of nothing more 
than the beloved of God. God's intention isn't to show new favoritism, but to abolish all earthly status and ambition and distinction, to equalize all humanity under both the humility and the honor of his grace. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope you take these verses as a comfort. You don't have to be intimidated as you dip your toe into faith because there's not a single person in this room who is more worthy of God's love than you are. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. We are all nothing more and you are certainly nothing less than the beloved of God. So back to the text, verse 8. So James has just given us all of these reasons for not showing favoritism, and then he wraps it up with this, this final kind of terrifying paragraph, uh, which points back to this idea of being undivided in the heart. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Our daughter used to sleep like a champ, and then we switched her from a crib to a, a, a twin mattress, which we just keep on the floor because she still rolls around a lot and we didn't want her to, to fall off and bump her head. So we have to have this conversation with her every night about not getting out of bed. Okay, baby, if you wake up, you understand that you, you can't get out of bed. You gotta stay here until mommy and daddy come to get you, okay? Yes, mommy, I will stay in my bed. Can you snuggle with me, mommy? <laughs> Incidentally, I was putting her down the other night and uh, she just got under the covers and I, and I go to begin the conversation and before I can, she takes my cheeks and her little hands like this and she says, now listen, mommy, you know that I love you, but you have to go downstairs to your bed and no getting up, okay? <laughs> okay, now go down to your bed and go make a project with daddy. Now, <laughs> before you think that I was explaining biological reproduction to my three-year-old, allow me to explain myself. Like a month ago, we were putting her down and, and you know, she, the, the whole song and dance and, you know, she says, can you snuggle with me? And I'm codependent, so I feel the need to explain to her what I'm doing instead, you know? So that night we were making our Dave Ramsey paper and pencil budget. So I said, I'm sorry, baby, I can't lay down with you because mommy has to help daddy with a project. So every night after that, she has told me to go make a project with daddy. <laughs> so just know that your children Whatever you say to them, they're like tiny little Amazon echoes, just always recording, just waiting for an opportune moment to say what they've heard in public. That's not the point of the story. What's the point of the story? Right, so we, so we have a conversation every night uh, about not getting out of bed, and I know she knows she's not supposed to get out of bed because she repeats it back to me, right? She says, yes, mommy, I will not get out of bed. I'm not gonna get out of bed, okay. So like two nights ago, it's like 11 o'clock, I hear some giggling on the monitor followed by some gibberish that I can't make out. And then as I come more and more back into consciousness, uh, I start to hear specific lines. Hello, I called you up to say hello. What is that? Some are thin and some are fat. What is she saying? The fat one has a little hat. Oh, she's, she's reading One Fish, Two Fish. So I go upstairs uh, and I go into her room and sure enough, she's sitting bolt upright. She's turned the overhead lights on. She has a circle of her stuffed animals around her like a posse and she's reading them one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. So I say, what, what you doing, baby? To which she replies enthusiastically, staying in bed, mommy. <laughs> uh, 
sorta, you know, but there are some restrictions implied in staying in bed that, that you're not observing right. I didn't realize I had to be so specific. So the, the, in the New Testament, the, the word law is singular. It's, it, it's meant to encompass the entire body of commandments, but it's a singular entity. The law isn't a bunch of little laws. It's a, sing, a single entity comprised of, of many, many commandments. So James is saying here, look, look, you're either a lawbreaker or you're not. If you don't observe the entire law, you're a lawbreaker. God doesn't grade sin on a curve. Now, I'm not saying that all sin is equal in terms of its, its personal and corporate consequences. It's not. I'm simply saying that, that all sinners are equally guilty. God doesn't grade sin on a curve. So you're either, you're either sinful or you're not. You can't be a little bit sinful any more than you can be like a little bit alive or a little bit pregnant or a little bit of a Twilight fan. You're either <laughs> observing the entire law or you're not observing it. You're a lawbreaker. And he's not saying this, I think, to frighten us, but to remind us that, that, that showing favoritism is just as condemning as murder because God doesn't grade sin on a curve. We can't just pick what's more important. It still betrays the, the, the divided heart, the, the disloyalty, the divided heart, even if, that's heart, even if that heart is divided in places that are more socially acceptable than others. And James knows that no one's perfect. He knows that, 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 that no one can perfectly observe the entirety of the law. He knows that. We know that. If, if we could, we wouldn't need a savior. But James is giving us a reminder that, that, that we can't chopstick our way to obedience. We can't decide for ourselves what are the important parts of the law to follow and what parts don't matter as much and, and expect that to be good enough for God. No one is good enough for God. The Virgin Mary wasn't good enough for God. Mother Teresa wasn't good enough for God. Zach Van Dyke isn't good enough for God, despite all the trophies to the contrary. It's just not, there's no one that's good enough for God. Without the sacrifice of Jesus, no one is good enough for God. James knows that, that if we attempt to observe every part of the law, we'll still get it wrong sometimes. And that's okay, because as he reminds us later in this paragraph, mercy triumphs over judgment. But, but please, please, don't let that resolve all the tension. Because yes, mercy triumphs over judgment, but, but to not even attempt to observe certain portions of the law to diminish their importance in one's mind. James knows this is the perversion of sola fides, of faith alone, that he is writing to warn the church against. Saving faith compels good works, and James may call them works, but they are Paul's fruit of the Spirit by any other name. I won't argue against justification by faith, I can't, but, but I think we have to faithfully reckon with the question of what it means to have saving faith. It can't be belief alone. James says just later in this, in this chapter that even the demons believe and they shudder. He's not saying that, that, that works will save you, they can't, but, but that the faith that you have that has already saved you will by nature compel the kinds of good works that he's talking about. Faith will work. And if not, for heaven's sake, let's figure out why. James is a pastor at heart. He's not asking these questions to condemn us, but out of genuine concern for us and for everyone that God has given us to love. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. James knows that saving faith will compel us to action, even though the action isn't what saves. But, 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 But because he knows that, Because faith compels us to action, even when we're killing it, even when we are producing a a veritable smorgasbord of fruit, there is still a temptation there. Because if the devil can't push you over backward, he will try to pull you over forward. So we may on occasion, even in the stretches of our most devout seasons of discipline and service, succumb to the temptation to to inspect other people's fruit. Well, so-and-so wasn't a nicer probably at home, drinking mojitos, watching Game of Thrones, fruit inspector. Well, so-and-so just bought a new truck. I bet they're not even tithing fruit inspector. Who knows? You know, you don't know. Maybe they weren't at NYSERV because uh, because their baby was sick. And maybe their baby was sick because they spend all their free time uh, volunteering in the pediatric unit of Nemours. How do you feel now? And maybe, and maybe they bought that Toyota Tacoma because Rob's transmission died while we were on our way to, to take dinner to our friends. And we're, it's a 2007 because we're trying to be frugal. And I know that because it doesn't have power anything. And I have to roll the windows up manually. <laughs> this is all hypothetical. <laughs> we are no less. But we are also no more than the beloved of God wholly dependent upon his grace for our salvation. So before we dare stand in judgment of another person, before we divide our hearts in such a way that divides us from each other, let us remember that we too are insufficient to stand under the law without the mercy of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So be careful about judgment. We can't live perfectly, but we can live mercifully. We can live faithfully. Speak and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. Speak and act as those who recognize they aren't good enough. Speak and act who who recognize their common equity with every human being under God, both rich and poor, desperate and full. Speak and act as people whose only act of favoritism consists not of offering a seat near the front to the rich, but a seat near you to anyone who has not yet been welcomed into the fellowship of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again to be here, gathered together as your followers and worshipers. Lord, we know that we all fall short of your glory and we're grateful that while we fall short of your glory, you do not leave us short of your grace. We confess that we all favor certain people and places and things that promise to meet our needs in a way that is outside of the boundaries of your design. And we beg for you to move into all the hidden corners of our hearts where there is distrust just waiting. Lord, we petition on behalf of your character that you would give us the wisdom to live faithfully in all circumstances and make us secure in the knowledge that this is, in fact, all we really need. Lord, I pray that that each of us would begin to look more closely at what our next right step could be on how we can better serve as your ambassadors to this world 
And as we study your word together as a church, let it form us individually and corporately more into your image for the sake of others. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.